In verses uh, 13 to 23, we learned that uh, we do have this freedom, but we should never allow the exercise of our freedom to be a hindrance or a stumbling block to someone else's faith. So if using our freedom will hurt another believer's walk with Christ, well then, we lay down that freedom uh, for uh, their sake while we are in their presence. And now in chapter 15, what we see is that we need to put other believers first because that's what Jesus did. Jesus put others above himself. And so if we're going to follow his example, we put other believers first. Now, uh, we're going to go all the way through verse 13 uh, today, even though I only uh, stick to read through verse 6. Uh, but what we're going to see here is, is two separate sections, uh, and, but they're, they kind of uh, follow the same model. What we're going to see in each is that there's a principle for what we ought to do, and then there's a reason for why we ought to do it, and then Paul closes each section with a benediction or a prayer uh, asking the Lord uh, to help. And so the first section is how to achieve unity among God's people. And this runs from verses 1 to 6. So how to achieve unity among God's people. Uh, this is uh, verses 1 and 2. And the principle is put your neighbor above yourself. Now, we who are strong ought to bear the weaknesses of those without strength and not just please ourselves. Each of us is to please his neighbor for his good to his edification. So we saw in chapter 14 how Paul talked about the weak in the faith, uh, and that, that occurred throughout chapter 14. But now here, for the first time in verse 1, uh, Paul identifies the opposite. He talks about the strong, and he identifies himself with the strong. And so the strong had no issues with eating meat that may have been sacrificed to idols because they knew that there was no such thing as an idol. An idol holds no real power. It's man-made. It's, it's nothing. It's not a thing at all. Uh, and Paul and many in his Roman audience had been Christians for 20-plus years, in fact. And so they had matured to the point that, that this was no longer a concern for them. They were not burdened by what they should eat, nor were they burdened by what they should drink or or what they should wear. They, they knew that they had freedom in these areas to do as they wished. <clears throat> but the weak in the faith, on the other hand, uh, they were not convinced that they could uh, eat this or, or drink this or, or wear that. They had uh, scruples about these things. They, they, they struggled with these issues. They were used to following rules and, and eating and drinking and wearing whatever they wanted might hurt their consciences. So you have the strong on the one hand, you have the weak on the other hand what to do. Paul said that the strong ought to bear the weaknesses of the weak. And that means that the strong, uh, even though that they were convinced that all food was clean, that they could eat whatever they wanted to, uh, that doesn't mean that you have to exercise the freedom that you have all the time. Now, there's a time and a place for the exercise of freedom. And so unrestrained freedom can have unwanted uh, consequences like hurting the faith of another believer. And so uh, for Paul, his example was food. Uh, we don't really deal with food sacrifice to idols today, so it's not really culturally relevant to us. 
Uh, but for us, perhaps the use of alcohol is an example. Uh, if we have no problem having a drink of wine, but we know that we are hanging, hanging out with someone uh, who happens to have an objection to the use of wine, well, what do we do? Uh, we forsake the drink, right, tonight. It's not that big of a deal. The, the drink is not as important as uh, the, the fellowship and the building up of another person's faith. It's more important than our freedom in that situation. Because if the Christian life was only about pleasing ourselves, which is what this verse says, we should not just please ourselves. If it's only about pleasing ourselves, then yes, we could do whatever we want, whenever we want, even in the presence of other believers. But the motivation for everything that we do as Christians is love, right? Not, not to please ourselves, it's to love each other. And so is it loving to have the drink in front of somebody who you know objects and who it offends? Well, no, that's not loving. That's asserting your freedom over, uh, their, uh, the, over the fact that you know that they're offended. So in that situation, it's more loving to sacrifice for the sake of your brother or sister who objects. Now, over time, hopefully, we'll have the chance to dialogue with that person, and maybe we'll have a chance to, to discuss our reasons why we think that uh, having the drink is okay, and uh, that, that's how we, we disciple each other. We talk to each other. We, 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 we uh, edify each other through the scriptures, and, and maybe at some point we'll come to a mutual understanding. Maybe we will, maybe we won't, but until we do, uh, we should not seek to please ourselves. We should seek to please our neighbor for his good, for his edification. I want to talk about this word edification. Uh, the, the Greek word oikia means house, and uh, the Greek word oikodomeo means building a house. The Greek word oikodespados means master of the house, which I can't hear without breaking into song, but you'll forgive me for that. <coughs> uh, and then the word for edification that Paul uses is this word uh, oikodome, uh, which means literally the builder of the house, but figuratively it means to build up another one in the faith. This is the word that Paul chooses for edification. So Paul is using this metaphor of house building for how we treat another, how we build another up according to the faith. We should see ourselves as builders of another person's house and we build them up, we strengthen their house by not weakening their faith. And, by, and the way we do that is to set our freedoms aside, to put others before ourselves. So we do whatever we have to in a specific situation to put others before ourselves so that uh, we sacrifice our liberty when necessary because of love, to strengthen another believer, to build another believer's house of faith. That's what edification means. So the principle, put your neighbor above yourself. Why do we do this? Well, the reason we do it is because Christ put us above himself. Verses three and four, for even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction so that through perseverance and the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. So, Jesus modeled this principle, right, of putting others above himself. Of, of all the people who ever lived, Jesus had the right as God in the flesh to please himself. 
uh, as God, it would be impossible for him to think more highly of himself than he ought, right? You can't think more highly of yourself than you ought when you are perfect, eternal God. There is no higher standard, and that's who Jesus is. And he did not become any less God when he took on a human body and walked the earth. Uh, he just chose to limit his power and prerogatives uh, as God while he dwelled in human, in human flesh. And rather than demanding his rights, rather than be demanding to be treated as God in the flesh who he was, uh, he did not choose to please himself. Instead, he chose to suffer and die on a Roman cross uh, for our sins, to, to pay the payment that God demands for our sins, to take that on himself. Now, there is no better definition than uh, the, to putting others above yourself than that. Uh, true love has no greater love than this, that he lay down his life for his friends, and that's what Jesus did for us. And now this is why Paul chose to quote Psalm 69 here in verse 3. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Now Psalm 69 was written by David. It's a cry of distress and it's David's prayer for revenge on his enemies. And uh, David, as we know, surely had a few spectacular failures in his life. We know that, right? Uh, but David insisted on righteousness. He loved God's word. And as a result uh, of his righteousness, he suffered unfair, unjust, and unrelenting persecution uh, as a result. And uh, a couple other New Testament writers have used Psalm 69 as well uh, to apply David's suffering in Psalm 69 to Jesus's suffering. Uh, the, the idea here is, is that a reproach is an insult uh, and the insults that people uh, uh, gave to God, they fell on Jesus because of Jesus' association with God. And now this is applied uh, to us. Uh, our reproaches fall on Jesus as well. And so Paul's reference here in Psalm 69 is that he takes everyone's insults and disgrace on his own person. And so uh, Paul now... Uh, the, the master of digression, right? Here he is in verse 4, and, and verse 4 here uh, is just thinking about Psalm 69 and the Old Testament scriptures causes him to digress a little bit uh, into the purpose of scripture uh, when he's writing verse 4. He says, whatever was written in earlier times, and that of course refers to the whole body of Old Testament scripture. Now, 2 Timothy uh, 3, verses 16 and 17, it's probably the most famous statement in the Bible about the inspiration and the purpose of Scripture. All Scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training of right in righteousness so that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. We know that verse, but Romans 15, 4 is another clear Scripture, a purpose a statement of Scripture, all of Scripture. All of Scripture, all the Old Testament Scripture. Now, as you know, uh, many uh, preachers these days uh, advocate for uh, jettisoning, uh, abandoning the Old Testament Scriptures. Um, <clears throat> and others teach that only certain parts are inspired, and then they choose the parts that they believe are inspired. Uh, and that's what they teach. And so not all of the Scripture is profitable for teaching. Well... I'm personally saddened that the word of God is being diluted uh, in this way and so flippantly and especially by people who are in the pulpit who have the responsibility to teach the word to God's people. Uh, Paul makes it clear that all of scripture is important, all of it is inspired, and all of it is written for our instruction. Now, 
The Old Testament represents the character, the, the morality, the holiness of God. Uh, and it gives us certain obligations to conform ourselves accordingly. But it's written for our benefit, not only in how to conduct ourselves, but also to give us hope so that we might have perseverance through the scriptures and have hope. And when we think about the Old Testament scriptures, where is our hope found there? Well, it's found everywhere, right? We have the, 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 the prophecy of the Lord's birth and his sinless life and his crucifixion and resurrection of the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, found throughout the Old Testament scriptures. And we know that all of this has already happened. A fulfilled prophecy, of course, convinces us about the truthfulness of scripture and that it all can be trusted. So we have what has happened in the past, the prophecy that has already been fulfilled. But we also have this Old Testament prophecy of his second coming. And that's why we never uh, get rid of the Old Testament, because in it is found the hope of the second coming. Uh, and that's why we read the whole word of God. So, for example, in Daniel chapter 2, all the way back in Nebuchadnezzar's reign, Daniel prophesies uh, to Nebuchadnezzar, interpreting the dream of the great statue of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and clay. And uh, Nebuchadnezzar is terribly troubled by this dream. And Daniel tells him, uh, this dream represents, the gold of the dream represents your kingdom. And the silver and the bronze and the iron and the clay represent kingdoms that will follow you, that are weaker than your kingdom. Uh, but then there will come a stone that is not made by human hands, and he will come, uh, and he will uh, shatter the kingdom that exists at the time, and his uh, glory and kingdom will fill the whole earth. And we understand that Jesus is that stone who will topple the kingdom that's standing at his return, and he will set up his kingdom on earth. So just one example of how the Old Testament predicts this second coming. Uh, Psalm 2 predicts a day when Jesus will break his enemies with a rod of iron. Uh, Zechariah 14 uh, prophesies about a day when Jesus will stand on the Mount of Olives making war against his enemies. And this is our future hope. But we have more than a future hope. We have hope for today. That's why we have these Old Testament scriptures. So for example, Isaiah 41.10, one of my favorites. So do not fear, for I am with you. Do not be dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you and help you. I will uphold you by my righteous right hand. So God gave us these scriptures so that we would have hope, not only hope in the future, but also hope in the present, hope for today. Uh, for all of us who are hurting, I could look around the room and, and probably know enough about each one of you to, know, to, to, to say specifically what it is that your particular prayer request is. I know we all are carrying some burden, and the Old Testament, particularly this verse, they're here to give us hope. Uh, I know from personal experience, as well as you do, that when you're in the middle of something, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, it feels like it is never going to end. You cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel. And we can come so discouraged by these things, whatever it is, that we can uh, tend to lose our hope uh, and lose uh, the, the idea that, that God is with us. We can forget that. Uh, and you may be feeling that way today because death and disease and, and sickness and depression and anxiety and money troubles and health troubles, they're all around us. They affect every one of us. And Paul understood that life is hard. Uh, he Remember, he's writing to Christians in Rome where Nero, the madman, is the emperor. And soon they are about to undergo some of the worst persecution imaginable. They were going to understand what it means to suffer. And so uh, Paul is writing to them and to us saying, stay in the word, persevere, be encouraged so that you will have hope.
And that's why Paul gave us, uh, God gave us his word. <clears throat> so we put others above ourselves because Christ put us above himself. And now Paul concludes this section with the benediction, returning again to this principle of accepting one another. Now, may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another according to Christ Jesus, so that with one accord you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. So God gives us this perseverance. He gives us this encouragement through the Holy Spirit and through Jesus Christ and through the word and through other believers. So now as believers, Paul urged us to get along with each other, to encourage each other, to build each other up, to edify each other, be of the same mind. Now, be of the same mind does not mean that we have to agree on everything, particularly regarding the non-essentials of faith, right? Paul has already said, you don't have to agree on everything, but you do have to get along. You have to be unified with each other. You have to be united on the non-essentials of the Christian faith, because there are things that God has not clearly spoken about in the scriptures, but we are still brothers and sisters in Christ, even when we disagree. So be of the same mind means that we put aside the incidentals of uh, our belief system, uh, and we focus on the essentials. Uh, we major in the majors is another way to say this. Uh, and the majors are, Jesus is eternally God. He's born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life uh, that we could not live. He died, he rose from the dead, and he is coming again. This is the essence of the Christian faith. These are the non-negotiables. Uh, and if we agree on these majors, then our opinion on the minors about whether we should dance or whether we should have a drink or, you know, the things that are non-essentials of the Christian faith, they should never divide us. Those things should never divide us. We should focus on what unites us, uh, our Christian confession of faith. And then together, with one mind, with one accord, with one voice, setting aside our differences, not looking at the person next to you and saying, oh, I disagree about this. No, you're not even looking at that, that, that other person. You are together looking up to the Lord God, and you're, you're praising him with one accord, one mind, one voice. Uh, that is what it means to be united. So that's the first section, how to achieve unity among God's people. And now the second section is about how Jesus unites us uh, by what he has done. And the principle is accept one another. In verse 7, therefore accept one another, just as Christ has also accepted us to the glory of God. Now, there's a, a shift here that, that takes place. Paul uh, said in verses 1 through 6, uh, whether you're weak in the faith or strong, uh, you need to accept one another. But now here he's going to shift from the, the, the unity of the weak and strong to the unity of the Jews and the Gentiles. And uh, so we want to see this. Uh, we all have to accept one another. And regarding the Jews and Gentiles, you're either one or the other. There, there is Jews and then there's non-Jews. So you have to fall into one of those two categories. And so Paul says, doesn't matter which category you're in, you need to accept one another because Jesus died to make the two groups one. So he's going to talk first about what Christ has done for the Jews, and then he's going to talk about what Christ did for the Gentiles. So uh, let's talk about what he did for the Jews first, and this is verse 8. The reason that uh, Christ has united us is because he has accepted Jews and Gentiles. So let's talk about these promises to the Jews. For I say that Christ has become a servant to the circumcision 
on behalf of the truth of God to confirm the promises given to the fathers. So we can see clearly that he's talking about the Jews there. Paul's uh, term for the Jews, sometimes he uses is circumcision, and obviously the fathers are the patriarchs, Abraham, uh, Isaac, and Jacob. So uh, what we see is that uh, Paul is referencing this Old Testament covenant starting all the way back in Genesis 12, where God made unconditional promises to Abraham of land, seed, and blessings. And unconditional means that Abraham didn't have to do anything to receive these promises. Uh, when God appeared to Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis, he walked through the pieces of the animal alone to show that God alone would be obligated to fulfill this covenant and to be bound by this covenant. And then God repeated the terms of this covenant both to Isaac and to Jacob so that God would be called the God of your fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so these are the promises that God has made to the fathers, the patriarchs. Now, God's fulfillment of his promises to the Jews is through Jesus Christ. All God's promises have been fulfilled or will be fulfilled in and through Jesus. So Jesus had to, God had to send Jesus to die on a cross as a servant to the circumcision, which is what we see here, uh, talking about what has God has done for the Jews to confirm the promises that, was made, that were made to the patriarchs. Now, these blessings uh, have been fulfilled to the fathers or they will be fulfilled when he comes again. And this is what uh, Christ has done for the Jews. Now, verse 9 and following talk about what God has done uh, for the Gentiles. Uh, and this is Jesus' acceptance of the Gentiles. <clears throat> and what we need to see here is that this is not based on any covenant that God made with the Gentiles, because God hadn't made a covenant with the Gentiles, right? There is no covenant between God and the Gentiles. Instead, God accepted the Gentiles based on his mercy, and that's what Paul wants to say in verse 9. And then Paul supported that point that God accepts us by his mercy with the quotation of four Old Testament scriptures. So God's mercy to the Gentiles supported here in verse 15, 9. And for the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles and I will sing to your name. So Paul borrowed this verse from David, the great hero who wrote about uh, God's mercy to him uh, for deliverance from his enemies that David recorded in 2 Samuel 22 and also in Psalm 1849. Now we know that David fought with Jews and Gentiles, not, not so much that he fought against the Jews, but he was on the run from the Jews, right? Uh, Saul, his, uh, the, the king that he served, uh, chased him down for years trying to kill him. And his own son, Absalom, tried to uh, assert a coup and, and kill David and take over his kingdom. And of course, uh, uh, David had plenty of, of trouble with the Philistines and various other Gentile groups, uh, but God gave him victory among them. And so what it says is that David praised God's name among the Gentiles. So God's name is being praised among the Gentiles. And what I want us to see here is that there's going to be a progression from praising his name among the Gentiles, and we'll see where Paul takes it here. The second verse that Paul cited builds on the first, and it's from Moses' song uh, to the people of Israel from Deuteronomy 32. Here's what it says. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. So do we see the progression? First, God's name is being pro proclaimed among the people. And now rejoice, O Gentiles, you rejoice too with his people, Israel. So the Gentiles are being brought into the fold in uh, Paul's progression of thought here. 
And so now there's a third quote, verse 11, uh, where it says uh, from Psalm 117, and again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. So again, the progression from being praised among the Gentiles to rejoicing with Israel, and now the Gentiles themselves are praising the God of Israel. And then finally, in the last Old Testament quote, uh, Paul cites the prophet Isaiah 15, 12. Again, Isaiah says, there will come the root of Jesse, and he who arises to rule over the Gentiles, in him shall the Gentiles hope. And so Paul used this verse to, to show the prophecy that the Gentiles too would put their hope in this root of Jesse. Now we know the root of Jesse language is from Isaiah chapter 11, this great chapter uh, where God promised that one day the root of Jesse would come. Now the root of Jesse, of course, Je Jesse is the father of David uh, to whom God promised a Messiah would come. So the root of Jesse is the Messiah who comes from the line of Jesse through David. Well, in this great chapter 11, uh, David says, or I'm sorry, uh, the, Isaiah says that the wolf will lie down with the lamb and the lion will eat straw like the ox and the Gentiles too will place their hope in Jesus. So the progression of, of Paul's thought here is first God's name declared among the Gentiles and then the Gentiles rejoice with Israel and then the Gentiles praise God themselves and then the Gentiles put their hope themselves in Israel's Messiah. This is all based on God's mercy. This is a glorious thing that God has done for people with whom he has no covenant. He still allows us to share in that covenant. God made no covenant with you or with me or with our fathers. He allows us to share in these covenantal blessings by his mercy. And so Paul wrote in Ephesians 2 uh, that about the unity of Jews and Gentiles through Jesus Christ. He said that, that Jesus has broken down the dividing walls. He tore them down. Before, uh, the Gentiles were strangers and aliens without God and without hope. Uh, but now that the dividing wall is torn down, the, the Gentiles have access to the Jewish Messiah. And he reconciled them to each other through the cross. Now, folks, there is nothing new under the sun, right? There's nothing new under the sun. Solomon wrote it uh, a thousand years before Jesus, and, and he knew even back then that there was nothing new under the sun. Uh, Jews and Gentiles were divided back in those days. The world has been divided among religious and ethnic and racial uh, lines for thousands of years. And it looks a little bit different today uh, than it did in Paul's day, uh, but it's the same. There's nothing new under the sun. Today we have denominational splits like we've seen in the Methodist Church recently because they can't agree on uh, what they ought to do with, with homosexuality in the pastorate and among the elder boards and among membership and things like that. And we're seeing it even now as the Southern Baptist Convention is undergoing a lot of strife within it uh, regarding some of these issues. Uh, they're, they're, they're splitting over non-essentials of the faith. And we have young people walking away from the church and their faith because they say, if this is what Christianity looks like, well, no thanks. Uh, and we're seeing that happen often. And what we need to understand is that people are different and we, we can celebrate our differences in the body of Christ as fellow believers. Uh, Jesus came not because humanity is different, but because humanity is the same. We are all the same. And how are we the same? We're all the same because we all have a collective sin problem. The problem is not with any group or any social structure. The problem is with you. And the problem is with me. 
We are sinners all. We all have a sin problem. We all have a sin nature. And this sin nature needs to have a cure. It doesn't matter what race, gender, ethnicity, or denomination we belong to. We all suffer from the human condition. And Jesus came to solve our collective sin problem, the problem we all share. He died on the cross to purchase the salvation of every person, male and female, slave or free, Jew or Greek, black, white, yellow, red, brown, it doesn't matter. He came to save each of us, and that's the gospel. So the goal of the gospel is the salvation of individual souls to the glory of God. And so the gospel unites everyone under a common problem. The common problem is sin. But it unites everyone also under this common solution, Jesus Christ, who died to pay for our sins and gave us a common eternal hope that we will all be in heaven with him someday if we receive him. And the result of that ought to be unity, right? We all have the same problem. We all have the same solution. We're all going to the same place that ought to unite us. But what happens? It Instead, we, we, we find ways uh, to, to divide among each other. Uh, Jesus broke down the dividing walls. He gave us a common hope. And Christians, unfortunately, have become known for erecting walls between us, the same walls that Jesus tore down. God's plan is to heal division. Uh, among believers especially, not to create division. That's been Paul's entire point since chapter 14 began. The weak and the strong should not divide. Jews and Gentiles should not divide. Christians, we should not divide. We should unite. God has gone to such great length to unite Jew and Gentile. And obviously they had completely different backgrounds, but that doesn't mean they couldn't get along because they didn't need to divide over the non-essentials. What they should, they should unite over their common love for Christ. And that's the same for all of us today. That should be said of all Christians, that we unite under our common love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul's message is so simple. Don't divide over non-essentials. Don't let differences of opinion about non-essential issues divide us. Choose to accept one another based on what unites us, our love for Jesus Christ, our common confession of faith, and then uh, live accordingly. And so that's Paul's point. And now Paul concludes this with yet another benediction. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that you will abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. So this is Paul's prayer for us, for all his readers, based on everything that Paul has said so far. The hope, the God of hope is, is God our Father who provides everything that we need for daily living and who has uh, set us up uh, so that we may have a kingdom in heaven in the future. Uh, and so he has provided this remedy for this common sin problem that we have. We don't deserve eternity with Jesus, but we get it because of our faith in him, because he's provided a way out of our sin dilemma. And this should give us great joy, uh, which is this life of uh, excited anticipation of what the future holds, eternal life after our bodies uh, expire. And it should also give us peace. Uh, peace is, is this warm feeling that we have that is the complete opposite of anxiety, uh, tension, uh, always being on edge about something. And so we don't need to be fearful. We don't need to be anxious because we know where we're going. And so we have this hope. We have this peace. And this all happens through the power of the Holy Spirit who comes and indwells us and fills us with this hope, uh, joy, and peace as we learned all the way back in Romans chapter 5. Now, there are a million things 
that could divide Christians, right? We've just had a very contentious election, and which candidate you supported is a source of great division among Christians. That can be a very divisive issue. We're coming out of a horrible uh, pandemic, worldwide pandemic, and our position on whether to meet for church live or whether to wear masks or even today, whether to get vaccinated is a very hot button issue and we can divide over these things and Christians are doing that just like the church of my friend that I told you about earlier. Well, Christ died to save us all and to unite us all under his lordship and into his eternal and infinite kingdom. So we should be looking for ways to unite, uh, not to divide. Now let me finish with two challenges. And the first one I just said, be a uniter not a divider. Resolve that you are going to be part of the solution and not part of the problem. This very week, this week, you are going to have opportunities to unite or to divide. Uh, you're going to have opportunities to exercise your freedom at the expense of another believer with a weaker faith uh, or to set that freedom aside and put that uh, believer's spiritual welfare first. So you can choose to edify them by your conduct or choose not to. And I would encourage you uh, as a uniter to choose to edify that person. This week, you're going to hear something about another believer because people talk, right? People gossip, that's what they do. And so what you're going to hear this week is uh, another believer's political beliefs or their stance with regard to the virus or masks or vaccines or whatever else. Remember, Christ died for that person. He's a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's in the kingdom of heaven where you both will spend eternity together. Christ has accepted him or her. And you can join in the gossip and you can say, oh yeah, that person, yeah, he thinks this or thinks that, he's nuts. You can do that if you want to. You can be an agent of division or you can agree to disagree on non-salvation issues and accept your brother as Jesus has and rejoice in your common salvation. So be a uniter, not a divider. And second, show the mercy that Jesus showed you. As I said, God does not owe any of us mercy, right? That's what mercy is. Mercy is, is you deserve punishment, but God withholds it from you and from me. And so when we're tempted to divide over non-salvation issues because we have judged another person to be incorrect in what it is that they believe, uh, we can judge them and we can cast our judgment on them, or we can show mercy to that person and say, look, I don't agree with you, but we can still be brothers and we are still brothers and sisters in Christ. So when we're tempted to divide or to enter into some unprofitable argument that is going to gain nothing, uh, remember Paul's words to Timothy to stay in Ephesus, to instruct certain men not to uh, teach false doctrines or to, vote, to devote themselves to endless myths and genealogies which are unprofitable. Major in the majors, he said to Timothy. Don't let them teach false doctrines and don't get sidetracked by false doctrines, uh, uh, false mythologies, and uh, endless genealogies. In other words, major in the majors. Uh, show mercy. Don't waste time in the minors. Don't condemn others for what they think about their opinions. Put others first. That's mercy. So we'll show the love of Christ. If we can just remember these two points that Paul has brought out uh, in, these, in this passage, and they are just to put your brother or sister first in Christ and to remember to accept one another despite our differences. I pray we can do that this week, and, and, uh, and as the Holy Spirit applies this to our lives, that we will become more Christ-like as we accept others, even if we have different opinions. Let's pray. Lord God, we are selfish 
selfish creatures, and, and we want what we want, and we want uh, to be pleased, we want to please ourselves, we want people to agree with our opinions, we want to be right. Lord, I pray that we would focus more on being loving, because you put us first, Lord, and that took unfathomable love to do that, Lord, for, for you to put us above yourself and to suffer the shame and the pain and the separation from your Father because of our sins, Lord. Teach us, Lord, to be less selfish. Teach us to put others above ourselves. Teach us, Lord, as we're going about in our daily lives, uh, doing what we have always done, Lord, just change us. Change us to love our brother or sister more than ourselves. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's precious name. Amen.